I'd like to talk to you about the Holy Trinity, that practical doctrine with radical consequences for us. Did you know that the doctrine of the Trinity never appears anywhere in the Bible? It was the subject of intense debate throughout the first three centuries of the church, so much so that St. Nicholas punched a guy at the Council of Nicaea. That is a true story. Santa Claus punched a guy. So why were they fighting? What was the contentiousness behind that council? In Scripture, Jesus talks about being sent from the Father. He identifies himself as the Son of Man, the Son of God, and he sends the Holy Spirit. Indeed, in Matthew chapter 28, the disciples are baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The first and only time we hear the references to the three persons of the Trinity side by side in Scripture And so we have three persons, three divine persons named in the text. And the most important prayer for Jesus as a very faithful Jew would be the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And so the early church was left to wrestle with all three of these persons, whom we meet in each of today's readings, and also wrestling with the central claim of monotheism, that the Lord, the God of Israel, is one. So how possibly can we have three persons, and how are they related, and why does that matter for us? Catherine Lacuna's stunning book, God for Us, explores these questions, and I recommend it fully. I'll bring her into the conversation today. Here's her elevator speech for Christianity. In Jesus Christ, the ineffable and invisible God saves us from sin and death. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God continues to be altogether present to us, seeking everlasting communion with all creation. So don't miss the relationship in that claim. Indeed, in this first Sunday of in-person, indoor worship, It is a joy to be with you in these rooms again for the first time in almost 15 months. To enjoy the fellowship we all share. To notice the smiles, or should we say, smiling eyes. Do we greet our friends? Do we enjoy each other? It's such a joy to be back in this place. And that is the laughter, and that is the joy of relationship. Turns out relationship is one of the defining traits of Trinity. I have on my desk an icon from sort of 4th century Greece, and it's the three persons of the Trinity, and they're at a dinner table, and it's as if they're in conversation. This is referencing what the Greeks talked about as perichoresis, a movement, a whirl, a dynamism among the three persons of the Trinity. My friend Dwight Shiley puts it this way, the Trinity is the Christian way of describing a God involved in human affairs, who transcends the world in ultimate mystery, and yet also enters the world at its most particular and concrete, who is timeless and yet present, powerful and active even today. You might say as transcendent as the universe is large, as imminent as hands held in hands, as bread, as tears. Jesus calls God Abba, Father, or even a more relational term, sometimes translated Daddy, And that's actually how Paul talks about it in Romans text as well, that we are also heirs in Christ. And it is a profoundly relational term because God sends a son 
for the sake of the world. Why? Because God so loves the world. Then the spirit that Jesus sends is not a random effervescent feeling of niceness. It is the Holy Spirit, the named activity of God in our midst. And admittedly, much of what we say about Trinity is just garbledygook, and it doesn't mean a whole lot of anything to very many people. And that's because it comes from this Council of Nicaea in, in 325, which gives us the precursor to the Nicene Creed. It was convened by, Constant, by uh, Constantine. It was basically a political document in response to one guy, a guy named Arius, who actually was so popular among the lower class people of that time that there are documents of people in the ships saying there was a time when he was not, and that was basically referencing that Jesus existed separate from God, right? And the person who was advocating this was a guy named Arius. Basically, he was the hero of the lower class, and Constantine took the side of the upper class, which is an interesting turn in our church's history. And they were wrestling with this question, right? Because Arius was basically saying Jesus wasn't fully human. He was therefore, sorry, he was fully human and therefore not fully divine because the one who is sent is then less than the one who sends. But that's a problem because if Jesus is subordinate to God and isn't fully God, then how can you be saved through Christ? It also diminished Jesus' power and definitely seemed to diminish his divinity. So, fully God, fully human, how does Nicaea wrestle with this question? They said, true God from true God, true man from true man, of one being with the Father. Which is to say, Jesus was fully human and fully divine, of one being, of one substance, homoousios, with God. And that is the radical claim. That is the part worth remembering. That is the part worth leaning forwards toward the claim of a triune God. Because if the three persons are co-eternal and defined by love and passionate about relationship, then there are enormous consequences for us. Lacuna again, the ultimate ground and meaning of being is therefore communion among beings and persons. God is ecstatic, fecund, self-emptying out of love for another, a personal God who comes through self to another. And that, my friends, is why a revitalized doctrine of the Trinity matters. It changes how and why we do church. See, most people think that being Christian is kind of a moralistic, therapeutic deism, which is to say, you know, you should be nice and feel pretty good and God is there for you in a pinch, but not active in your daily life. And that's an ethical spirituality, but it makes no claims on public truth. And it is weak sauce compared to the bold claims of a triune God. Passionate about relationship with you and me and everyone else in all the world. Why does God send a son into the world only and only because God so loves the world. This triune God is defined by wholeness, justice, compassion, and love. And I want to say, for those of us who have gone to grad school, I know there's a bunch of folks in the room, you know how sometimes there's a book you get and you kind of skim through it or you read the introduction or you put it on your shelf and you say, I'll get to that one later. This is one of those books that I like read all the way through and like, put notes in the margins and dog-eared because it really made sense to me. Like, why does the Trinity matter? 
Why is it not just some distant God who might or might not be active in our lives, but instead a loving God, passionate about relationship, passionate about the outcomes of the world? The revitalized doctrine of the Trinity, she writes, clarifies that the God who does not need nor care for the creature who is immune to our suffering simply does not exist. The God too hidden for us to know or too powerful to evoke anything but fear does not exist. The God who watches us from a distance as an uninvolved, impartial observer does not exist. The God conceived as a self-enclosed, exclusively self-related triad of persons does not exist. The God who keeps a ledger of our sins and failings, the divine policeman, does not exist. These are all false gods, fantasies of the imagination that has allowed itself to become detached from the rule of God's life disclosed to us in Jesus the Christ. Because what we believe about God must match what is revealed of God in Scripture. And that is that God watches over the widow and the orphan and the poor. God makes the rains fall on just and unjust alike. God welcomes the stranger, embraces the enemy. In short, the triune God passionately cares about relationship with you. And why do we know that? Because a triune God is defined by a relationship of love. The dynamic truth of Trinity is that God sends. God sends forth the act of creation in a primal blur. God so loves the world that God sends his only son. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, the activity of God in our midst. The Holy Spirit builds and sends God's church, and God's church sends us, you and me, into the troubled waters where God's kingdom is not. It is precisely there in these waters that God calls us to build the kingdom of Shalom, which is a just peace for all of God's children. Friends, this is the apostolic mission of God, and it is the mission to which God calls us today. We hear the voice of the Lord saying it today in Isaiah, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? We are invited to say with Isaiah, here am I, send me. My friends, this is good news indeed. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Amen. Amen.